Hello, this is Tushta Krishna Das, and you're listening to ISKCON Denver podcast, where you can hear all of our classes and kirtans. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others. Thank you very much. Hare Krishna. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Hare Krishna Srimad Bhagavatam Canto 4, Chapter 3 The talks between Lord Shiva and Sati continue Text 19 Tatadapir there's an I after the R, just so you know. So, Tatarapir, Tatarapir, Na, Vyatate, Shalimukai, Shete, Urditango, Rudayena, Duyata, Svana. So, first line after the R, there's an I. And in the third line, the first word has. Uh, Third line also, the first word has two long A's. Svanam Gita Vakra Dhyam Duruktipir Divanisham Tapyati Marma Tadetaha Tadipir Navyatate Shali Mukai Shetir-ti-thang-go-hudayena-duyata-svanang-gita-vakrat-yang-duruk-ti-pir-divana-shang-tapyati-marma-tadita-tatar-pir-navya-tate-shali-mukhai
Word for word. Tata. So. Odepehe. Enemy. Na. Not. Vyatate. Is hurt. Shuli mukai. By the arrows. Shete. Rests. Ardeta. Aggrieved. Ungaha. A part. Rudayena. By the heart. Duyata. Grieving. Svanam. Of relatives. Yata. As. Vakratiyam. Deceitful. Duruktipehe. By harsh words. Divanisham. Day and night. Tapyati. Suffers. Marmatarataha. One whose feelings are hurt. Srila Prabhupada's translation. Lord Shiva continued. If one is hurt by the arrows of an enemy, one is not as aggrieved as when cut by the unkind words of a relative, for such grief continues to rend one's heart day and night. Please repeat. Lord Shiva continued. If one is hurt by the arrows of an enemy, one is not as aggrieved as when cut by the unkind words of a relative. For such grief continues to rend one's heart day and night. Srila Prabhupada's purport ki jai. Sati might have concluded that she would take the risk of going to her father's house and even if her father spoke unkindly against her, she would be tolerant as a son sometimes tolerates the reproaches of his parents. But Lord Shiva reminded her that she would not be able to tolerate such unkind words because natural psychology dictates that although pain, sorry, although one can suffer harm from an enemy and not mind so much, because pain inflicted by an enemy is natural, when one is hurt by the strong words of a relative, one suffers the effects continually, day and night, and sometimes the injury becomes so intolerable that one commits suicide. Hare Krishna. Om Ajnana Timirandhasya Jnananjana Shalakaya Chakshurin Militang Yena Tazmai Shri Gurve Namaha Shri Chaitanya Mano Pishtang Stapitang Yena Putale Svayam Rupa Kadam Hayang Dadatis Vapadantikam Vandehang Shri Guru Shri Utapadakamalang Shri Gurun Vaishnavangscha Shri Rupang Sagrajatang Sahaganarakunatan Vitang Tang Sajivam Sadvaitang Savatutam Parijana Sahitang Krishna Chaitanya Devang Shri Rata Krishna Padan Sahaganalalita Shri Vishakan Vitangscha Hey Krishna Karuna Sintho Dina Bandho Jagatpate Gopesha Gopika Kanta Ratha Kanta Namostute Tapta Kanchana Gaurangi Rathe Vrindavaneshwari Vrushapanu Sute Devi Pranamami Hari Priye Vanchakalpa Tarupyascha Kripa Sintupi Evacha 
So, we're continuing with the conversation between Lord Shiva and his good wife Sati. And uh, with your blessings, we'll explore this. There's so much practical application here. Uh, Lord Shiva is speaking and Prabhupada is echoing the, the power of speech, actually. This is one of the this is one of the things, one of the main things that distinguishes a human being from a, a non-human in this world is the ability to speak, the ability to actually convey uh, complicated ideas with subtlety, which is one of the things that we're actually asked to do as human beings. In the Bhagavad Gita, um, can I have a copy of Bhagavad Gita? The 17th chapter, there's a very nice verse about the austerities of speech. Does anybody remember anything from that verse? What are the austerities of speech? Truthful, pleasing. I missed that. Satyam is truthful, yes. Yeah, that's part of the truthful. Anything else? Non-agitating, beneficial. And I think there's one more. Reciting Vedic literature. Yeah, Svadhyaya. So the verse is, Anudvega karong vakyang satyam priyahitang chayat svatyaya pyasanang chayva vangmayang tapa uchyati. So Krishna in the in this context he's telling about um, sacrifices, austerities, charity in general, and he's breaking down austerities into austerities of the body, austerities of the speech, and austerities of the mind. And this is 1715, he's defining what the austerities of speech are for human beings. Austerity of speech consists in speaking words that are truthful, pleasing, beneficial, not agitating to others, and also re regularly reciting Vedic literature. So five things. And there's a really nice um, post by Hari Parsha Prabhu uh, on Facebook of all places. We not, not be expecting to find such nice speech. But he's known for his excellent speech. He actually he lists 16 different commentaries from Acharyas on this verse. Um, because it's something that's very dear to his heart, is uh, this point of speaking according to austerities of speech. So I reviewed them in preparation for this class, and l like a dozen of them confirm that um, really aus properly austere speech, the proper austerity of speech means following all of these things, actually. Which is not so easy if you think about it. You want to speak the truth. You want to be um, not disturbing the minds of the persons you speak to. You want to be beneficial, pleasing. So pleasing means that it's, it's nice in the short term. Beneficial means it gives some benefit in the long term. And uh, not necessarily at the same time, but in general, one should be reciting Vedic literature. I was thinking about this during my, um, my Pranam mantras, that this is one of the reasons why, we, why I at least chant uh, Sanskrit mantras to connect me to the pure essence of what I'm trying to actually convey in a few seconds. 
after that, just to get to get to this class that, okay, I'm going to say these things, but obviously we're all here in Kali Yuga. We have our own uh, karma. We have this, these different forces that are affecting us, the modes of material nature. There are a variety of things that can come out of our mouths. And um, being in touch with the Vedic literature, actually, um, especially just reciting it, is very, very purifying because these are the sound vibrations uttered by pure devotees. These are the sound vibrations uttered by Krishna. These are the sound vibrations that have been repeated for millennia and in age after age, yuga after yuga. And being in touch with that, um, if you can't find anything else to do, this is always a really safe place to go. Recite Bhagavad Gita, Srimad Bhagavatam. And um, that's always very, very beautiful and very purifying. So that's one of the reasons why we actually have this as part of our practice. Many devotees will chant certain mantras before their japa practice, before worshiping the deities, that's highly recommended. They'll chant mantras upon seeing other Vaishnavas, upon seeing the Guru, upon seeing the deity, upon approaching Shastra. And so we can see that the, these five things have a place in our life. And we want to actually have all of them as much as possible when we're speaking. Because there's a huge power to speech. Um, because the human being can actually convey things, this is a great responsibility and a great power that's given to them. Animals don't have the same ability. Um, and they don't have the same responsibility. So ability means responsibility. Anybody who actually can speak, um, who's a human form of, of, of life, actually has this responsibility that Krishna is uh, letting them know about to actually uh, not speak whimsically. And it's, um, it's particularly important in Kali Yuga because in this age, it's true that we can't necessarily control our minds very easily. And there's actually... Uh, Shastra to the effect that we're not punished for uh, offenses in the mind in the same way. You know, if we do something in the mind, we think of something um, or think of doing something that's not good, we don't get the same reaction as we would have in previous ages because it's understood that our minds are chanchalam, himana krishna, pramati balavadhritam, they're restless, turbulent, very strong, obstinate, mad. Um, this is, was spoken at the cusp of Kali Yuga, this verse between Arjuna and Krishna. The mind is, it's a, it's a, it, it's, it's a problem. And in Kali Yuga, Krishna knows that. We don't get the same results. And actually, Prabhupada says, you get some benefit just by thinking of doing something good. Because that's the kind of um, leeway that one, one has toward their mind, the, the Shastra has toward the mind of the conditioned soul in this age. But not so for speech. There's no such concession. Well, I said all kinds of nonsense things, but anyway, there's no reaction because it's Kali Yuga. No, there's definitely a reaction. There's definitely a reaction because there's a difference between, in terms of the, in terms of the practical effect, there's a difference between thinking about something and letting it come out of your mouth. And that's really practical for us as human beings because we have to pick our battles. We may not be able to conquer the mind second by second all day long. Um, of course, eventually we can, but at the level of practice, that may not be a practical battle to fight um, and consider that success. Well, how was your day? Uh, pretty good. Um, seven out of the different seconds of the day were not offensive in my mind. <laughs> it's, 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 it's not as practical to consider total victory over the mind as the a thing that we can actually accomplish right away. But we can control our speech. We actually can do that. Krishna expects us to do it, which means we can. We have the potential to do it. And so I wanted to focus on austerities of speech. I always found that verse 
uh, on austerities of speech very interesting. It's, um, it's challenging, like a lot of good things. Um, so I'd like to open it up, first of all, just from my reciting that verse about the austerities of speech, or from your own meditation on it, what comes to mind? What do you think about Jivan? Yeah, I also think it's really interesting. Um, and also, it doesn't... You mentioned that one should do all of those things, so that it doesn't seem possible because if you speak according if you speak Vedic if you speak Shastra that's not going to be pleasing to everyone if you tell the truth it's not guaranteed that someone's not going to be disturbed um, even Srila Prabhupada he would you know speaking things even some devotees in ISKCON may be disturbed hearing certain things, um, even though it's the truth or according to the Shastra, or even if it's said in a pleasing way. So, um, yeah, I'm just, I don't know if you could, ex you know, expand a little bit on, you know, yeah, if, it is po if that is po actually possible thing to do and what that looks like. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, anybody else want to mention anything before we close that? Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita that um, from contemplation of the objects of the senses, you know, attachment develops. So although we don't get reaction for, for you know, offenses within the mind, but it can lead to, you know, progression, and one can speak in, you know, speak things that are not nice, <laughs> just by, if one con continually contemplates within his mind. So, <laughs> it's not that we, so in that sense, we are not really free from reactions for the thoughts, eh? Because they, they lead to further degradation. It's a really good point. You know, it's understood from the, this Leela that we're in that Daksha had harbored resentment toward Lord Shiva for some time. Uh, his daughter was married to Shiva and he had continually harbored feelings of. Uh, he had a grudge, basically. He had a, a real problem with his son-in-law. And he had been thinking these things. As Krishna Sharan Prabhu points out, it's true that, like for us at least, although not for him, um, we don't get a reaction for thinking about things, at least not right away, but those, those same thoughts affect us and they can become words and become actions, become more and more um, concrete from the subtle platform of thoughts. And so, in a way, we actually very much are affected by them. And we see that with Daksha, his offense began in the mind, and it, it came out of his mouth. Uh, as soon as there was an opportunity for it, because Lord Shiva didn't stand up, he didn't really, Daksha didn't really consider the situation carefully. He didn't stop and think, why wouldn't he stand up? What's going on here? 
Who is he in relationship to me? What's the purpose of this assembly? No, no. He took the opportunity to blaspheme him because he had been meditating on that for some time. How much he disliked Lord Shiva, how much he was an, an unworthy son in his eyes, son-in-law for, for his uh, husband, for his, da- his daughter. And then he actually cursed him. And um, so it, it became more and more crystallized from that subtle realm. So definitely that... that that, and that's a, that was in an age where he didn't have the concession of not having a reaction for mental offenses. Um, so certainly for us, whose minds can expect to be less controlled than someone with the background of Daksha, there is the potential to become degraded very quickly by that mental activity. So although we, we don't get reactions right away, we should be very careful to see that our mind the tendencies of our mind aren't coming out of our mouth and do what we can to, to purify that, that connection between the mind and the speech and to not really just shrug our shoulders and say, well, the mind's a big, you know, dumpster fire, but it's okay. <laughs> I'll be all right. Because eventually not. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to connect that to this, this Leela from the Bhagavatam that that's actually what Dakshit was going through. He... He had this problem, and nobody really knew about it until he opened his mouth, and then it became this, I mean, really unpleasant thing that everybody had to deal with, public scene, and, and much worse, actually. Prabhupada hints at it, you know, such insults can actually result in death. It's so painful if someone actually com- com- commits suicide. Mother Nidra. I was just thinking of um, Srila Prabhupada's example, how, you know, he could chastise or praise the disciples or speak to people in general in uh, ways that perhaps we couldn't um, completely do because he had uh, pure love. So the connection between his heart and his speech was pure. And so in that way, he was able to... um, you know, to present Vedic literature and so many words to so many people that, you know, maybe some of the, even the disciples thought were disturbing, but was not disturbing because they were um, helping uh, the disciples and the living entity, mainly because Prabhupada had that love. And he, you know, he said the teachers, they should teach with love, you know, which involved also their speech. So if you're, when you're teaching, like Prabhupada was teaching, and devotee teachers, if, unless they have that, then uh, there's not that good, uh, proper connection with all of these uh, things that you've mentioned. Um, Selik also kind of said the same thing. He had a reflection online. He said, I feel the intention behind the words spoken also matter. They definitely do, yes. And, um, you know, it's important for us to understand. See, if you look at the purports of that Bhagavad Gita verse, Prabhupada actually says one should not speak in such a way as to agitate the minds of others. Of course, when a teacher speaks, he can speak the truth for the instruction of his students, but such a teacher should not speak to those who are not his students if he will agitate their minds. That's the general course of things. And when Prabhupada or others uh, are, are called to say something that could agitate the minds of others, 
for a higher purpose, even if they're not their students. Um, that's an exception. That's an exception. We'll find that a lot of Prabhupada's heavier statements about uh, society and persons not practicing devotional service and different kinds of anarthas that can be there were uttered in private, in conversations, and not, uh, not published. But even in his books, we can find he does, he does have heavy statements. But this comes to the point of the, the motive. Actually, Bhaktivinoda Thakur talks about this, which touches on Jivan Mukta's question. Uh, Bhaktivinoda Thakur mentions in an article he wrote called Vaishnava Ninda, which is all about uh, blasphemy of devotees. He says there's three types of proper motive for analyzing someone else's faults, right? Which is kind of what we're talking about. Sometimes someone has to actually analyze someone else's faults. It may be practical to do so. Although we generally we're called on to not do that. It's not good for us. But there are three types of proper motive. If the intention in analyzing someone's fault is to ensure that they, the person you're analyzing, attains ultimate welfare, then such reflection is auspicious. If the motive is to benefit the whole world, that's also auspicious. If the motive is to undertake your own spiritual welfare, that's completely auspicious as well. But it has to be one of these three things, and it can't be anything else. And as you mentioned, that's, um, that's actually tangible. That motive is actually tangible. That one can actually sense the motives of others. That's also part of what makes a human being a human being. We can speak, and we're sensitive to the speech of others. Human beings are actually very sensitive. Even animals are sensitive. If you talk to them a certain way, they can actually feel it. What to speak of humans? Plants even, too. So, um, when a pure devotee speaks, they're speaking for the ultimate benefit of the person they're speaking to. It could be a disciple who's you know, kind of going off the rails and the, the guru has to say something. It could be very heavy. But that, that love is there. It's not out of frustration. It's not out of personal resentment. It's not of, oh, why am I wasting my time with this person or any other such consideration. It's simply a, a consideration of this person needs to hear this. And um, they've actually surrendered to hearing that truth. And that, that feeling that's there, which is not sentimental because it actually has to do with Krishna and the person's relationship to Krishna and the Guru's relationship to Krishna, comes through. In fact, in the fourth canto later, we hear that the words of the pure devotee they agitate the saffron mercy particles, which are always there at the lotus feet of Krishna. And those same particles of mercy, this is such a poetic verse, enter into the ears of those who hear the words of the pure devotee and are very enlivening to them. And this is a, an explanation of what happens actually when one hears from somebody who is speaking out of Krishna Prema. They can say anything. They can really say anything because everything is related to Krishna for them. There's no prajalpa. There's no... Um, spacing out and talking about something without connecting it to Krishna. No, nothing outside the purposes of Krishna, and therefore it's very enlivening. That, that's a tangible thing. So um, we can sense that to some degree, and also we're, we're called on to very minutely analyze our motive when speaking, um, and to pray for purification of that motive. Because as this purport, Bhagavad Gita points out from Prabhupada, the normal course of activities is we never should and uh, give correction to anyone who's not our student. But we're actually asked to do that in this movement. We're actually asked to give correction to the world <laughs> because it's really going into a bad place. 
And that means that we should understand we're, we're operating in an exception, a massive exception that's given to us by the Guru Parampara. And we should be very careful that our motives are therefore clean. And that we don't carry that same exception to other realms of our lives. Well, I spent all day telling people that they should surrender to Krishna on book distribution because they needed to hear that. Therefore, when I go back to the ashram, I can be harsh with everybody because that's what I've been doing all day is telling it how it is. No, we've been operating under an exception and that doesn't always apply. Uh, there's certain categories of, there's certain times when we should speak the unpalatable truth and that there's a higher principle involved. For example, if it's for the benefit of the whole world and for the benefit of the person we're speaking to, the benefit of ourself and no other, no other purpose, then we can actually point out, my dear Jiva, you're headed to a really bad place. In fact, you're already in a bad place. And here's more, in this, more to find out about that in this book or whatever. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting point. So to, to Jivan's point, it does seem difficult or perhaps irreconcilable how we can actually speak the truth and, and, and speak Vedic literature and so forth and still expect to please everybody. And uh, from what I could see from the comments of the Acharyas on this verse, from Bhagavad Gita, from Prabhupada and his mood. Um, essentially, we're, we're asked to try our best and understand that when speaking for, um, when, when speaking in a way that actually falls outside of the austerities of speech, for example, when we actually are called on to speak a truth that's beneficial in the long term, that's in touch with Vedic literature, that doesn't cause undue anxiety but may not be pleasing, we should understand and be very clear that that has to be given as a service. It can't just be taken. We can't just spontaneously decide when we want to break these austerities, right, independently. Um, Srila Prabhupada and previous Acharyas and Lord Chaitanya Krishna have given uh, codes of behavior They've given standards and they've given exceptions to those things that, you know, there are times when we can actually agitate the minds of others. Like when Ron Harinam, <laughs> you know, we can't be expected to only find persons who are not going to be agitated by the holy name. That's not reasonable. We're not actually asked, asked to make that distinction because some people are going to like it externally and some people are going to really love it externally and some people are really going to hate it and find it super weird and uncomfortable and displeasing. Um, of course, we're asked to not go out of our way to, to, to annoy them. If we, can, you know, if we can not break laws and so forth, that's a good thing. But we're not actually asked to please everybody. That's not part of our, our profile as, as Sankirtan devotees. Um, because the benefit of the long term is considered so important that our acharyas and, and Mahaprabhu himself have basically given us the green light to get in people's faces, potentially, in the short term. That's an exception. But we should understand the nature of that exception, and that it is an exception. It's not the general course of activities. We're not actually meant to act whimsically and, and, and uh, violate people's sense of, uh, of comfort, generally. When we, when we do so, we should make sure we're doing it for a service that's been given to us. So speaking the unpalatable truth from Shastra may be one of those services. Um, at that time, we should make sure it's a service, it's given to us, and that we're not speaking from some mixed motive. It's very easy for devotees to say, well, Prabhupada said all these things, so I can say them too. And that's true. But Prabhupada also had great care to purify his motive. If you read his poetry, for example, 
there's a book of poetry that was released um, about Prabhupada's, from Prabhupada, his early poetry when he was a young sannyasi. It was called A, a Shower of Compassion or something. There, Mother Nidra, you know that book? It was translated by uh, Jayapataka Swami from Bengali. There's a series of poems. Prabhupada is very introspective. He's very careful about where he's coming from. He's very careful to pray for empowerment and to make sure that his motives are pure. Uh, this is years before he came to the West. And we should try to emulate, try to come to that standard of, of purifying our own conduct and not just saying, well, I'm going to have the green light. I can say whatever I want as long as it's echoing the words of the previous Acharya. That's good in the beginning, but we should also try to echo the sense of motive of the previous Acharya. If we don't do that, then we, risk running the, we run the risk of actually staying immature and mixed in our motives. That I'm trying to help them, but at the same time, I'm kind of, frankly, getting off on telling them how low they are. I'm frankly enjoying how, how nice it is to be the instructor for once. I like to tell people that they're in the wrong. That, that desire is there in some way, some other mixed motive. That's um, going to hold us back in the long term. That's not actually meant, by the way, to prevent us from preaching at all. But one is actually called to purify their preaching as they go on. Uh, my experiences on book distribution, for example, are that uh, it's a very dynamic experience where Krishna actually puts you in touch with agitating situations and your own mixed motives. And if you don't deal with that, eventually you, you get reactions for it more and more. You can get away with certain things in the beginning that you couldn't get away with later because Krishna expects you to grow up and purify your motives. So. Uh, yeah, I hope that kind of clarifies some of the issues around the difficulty of trying to do all of these things. Truth, pleasing, beneficial, not agitating, and also in line with Shastra. Sometimes we have to sacrifice some of these for a greater good, but we should be careful in doing so. And we should be very, very uh, aware of whether it's a service or it was taken up independently and what my motives actually are in that. Yes. Just to sort of add to what you're already saying, that to, to speak the truth means we have to really know what the truth is, first of all. And not even just like the absolute truth, but also to know like, is this really true? And we may not know. So what, what's, to speak something truthfully means to even truthfully say, I don't know if this is true. That's true. But to really honestly be true, means like, you know, um, my perspective is this, and I know that my perspective is just one slice of reality. You know, so to know what's actually true, it's not that every time we're speaking, we can, we're just speaking absolute truth, or, you know, there's relative truths. But, um, yeah, I'm appreciating what you're saying. Like, it seems like in order to really to really speak according to these principles that Krishna is saying in Bhagavad Gita that we have to um, have intelligence, we have to have intuition, and we have to be uh, introspective. And, and I was thinking, even if we think that our, and our, even if we check our intention and we check it again, it is like important to know that it's not that I'm pure now, 
and I don't have to wait, but I can check my intention. And then based on, there's the intention, and then there's also a, just a, a, a sort of understanding like how to speak. There's some basic practical things on how to say something in a certain way. Like, you know, why are you doing this? Instead, like, okay, what's my tone? I use that word, but maybe I should use a different word. So even though, yes, check our intention, knowing that we may not be pure now, and also using even the externals in a mindful way to have the best delivery. Yeah, that's very practical too, that um, you know, speaking is actually an art. In fact, in, in traditional cultures, like if you look at what the ancient Greeks and Romans studied, what was considered general education, what's considered general education in a lot of different cultures included what's called rhetoric, the ability to speak, the actual ability to convey an idea clearly and purely as much as possible, because that's beneficial for everyone everywhere, because <laughs> if you want to you know, have a relationship with husband or wife, that's such an important thing. If you want to have a relationship with your customer and you're a merchant, that's very important. You want to, you, I mean, you end up being anything in life, you're going to use your speech. So that was considered uh, ground level education for everybody. And I, I would argue it's really not considered so, so important anymore in our society um, to our detriment. I think that there's a lot of uh, logical fallacies, there's a lot of really bad habits of speech. Um, people are very inclined toward generalization, toward very harsh speech in many ways. Self-aggrandizement, sarcasm, putting down others, um, all kinds of things. And they just exacerbate problems, for sure. And as for your other point, it's very well taken. Prabhupada says in the purport that one should not, quote, one should not talk nonsense. The process of speaking in spiritual circles is to say something upheld by the scriptures. One should at once quote from scriptural authority to back up what he is saying. So, um, to speak the truth, one has to know the truth, means that one has to do a little bit of digging and be aware of what is coming down uh, as a message of truth. And then there's, a, there, there's an etiquette. Like in formal circles, if you're, if you're giving a class or you're talking about a philosophical point, you're actually expected to know where the points come from. Um, if not specifically, then generally, so that, you know, somebody can find it. Um, and this is a good point for persons who are trying to develop their own sense of Shastra. It's sometimes less important to memorize verse numbers and exactly where something is than where it can be found. If you can find it in under 30 seconds, that's pretty good. Because then, uh, if you're in a conversation or you're, you actually get challenged on a point, you can say, okay, pull out your handy smartphone, which I'm sure everybody has a smartphone now, 2020, um, and use it to look up the point. You know, use Gitabase, use Vedabase. I like Gitabase a lot. I think it's really good, by the way. I'm not getting paid to say that. Um, it makes me look smarter. If you, if you can find it in under 30 seconds, then that's good. That's a, that's a strong piece of, of, of pramanam and a strong connection in your mind. And we're expected to have that if we're in a conversation. And if not, then as you pointed out, we can just say, this is my point of view. And that's at least honest. Uh, one Acharya in his commentary on this verse says that the truth, speaking the truth as an austerity of speech means we actually have to have realized what we're saying. 
which if you think about it is really heavy. You know, if someone says, so that's God, and we want to say yes, we have to realize that. So at the highest level, we're actually asked to realize whatever we're speaking, which is an incredible responsibility. But until then, we can say, yes, actually that is God. According to Bhagavad Gita and Srimad Bhagavatam and all these texts and the realizations of great devotees before me, that's God. That's the Supreme Personality of Godhead. That statement's completely true. I didn't say that I've realized Govinda completely. I've said that Prabhupada has. And Bhagavad Gita has spoken it. And Vishwanath and all these great acharyas have said it. That's the truth. And that's, um, that's honest. Otherwise, if somebody says to me, have you realized God? Then I have to speak more on the relative platform, personally. I can say, yeah, I have to. To a certain extent, I actually really have. And it's a process. It's a, it's a, a work in progress, for sure. Um, that would be an honest answer. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. That we should know what truth is, be in touch with it as much as possible, in touch with those who actually have or in touch with the truth himself, and be ready, able, and willing to cite them, generally if, if necessary, and specifically if we can, uh, to make points. And that's how truth is actually upheld. That's Brahminical discourse. Um, and then as much as possible, we should be aware that we're on our way to, to realizing these truths. That's what's expected of us. Uh, that we certainly we can actually realize these truths. That's why they're in the Shastra. So, yeah, it's 8.50. Any more on, on this verse in Bhagavad Gita, Austerities of Speech? Um, yeah, just to connect it to the, the Bhagavatam, we can see, if the hint wasn't obvious enough in the purport, there is going to be a very heavy reaction for Daksha because he's not going to follow the austerities of speech because he didn't follow the austerities of mind. And he actually performed Vaishnavaninda. He actually offended Lord Shiva with his speech, even with his actions which stemmed from his own offenses in the mind. And it's going to deeply affect Sati, his daughter, because as, as, uh, as the verse says, Lord Shiva says, you may think that you can go there and tolerate what your father would say to you, because he and I have this quarrel. But actually, that's not how it works. Because you already have a relationship with him, there's a, I'm paraphrasing, there is a higher standard you're going to hold him to than person on the street, you know. I mean, like somebody can just drive by and say anything to you in a car, <laughs> like say any kind of nonsense in the world. And like, you'll raise an eyebrow and be like, wow, what a weird, you know, disgruntled, strange person. But if they're a stranger, that's one thing. And if you go home and your husband or wife says that to you, same thing. I mean, wow, it's the pain of it. The, the verse says that the arrows that strike your body don't hurt that much because you can actually take rest after you've been pierced by an arrow. But if, if the mental anguish is there of somebody close to you speaking harsh, harsh words, you can't, you can't get any rest. It's too painful. So Lord um, so we see, we see the potential here. I hope that, that speech can really uplift when it's spoken with the right motive. It, it can really build a bridge between us and the spiritual world. It's a huge gift for the human being to convey these truths. And even to echo back the words of Shastra is, is profoundly powerful. And it can do the opposite. It can actually tear people down. It can destroy. Um, in the 18th chapter, I think, of Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says that, uh, let's go find the verse here. See, I'm going to perform the austerity of speech and not speculate. He says something.
Where are you, verse? <laughs> Here it is. 1828. The worker who is always engaged in work against the injunctions of the scripture. Okay, so this is a worker in the mode of ignorance. They're materialistic, obstinate, cheating, and they're expert in insulting others. <laughs> you think about like, you can make a whole career out of being expert out of insulting others. <laughs> it's called being a stand-up comic. You know, it's what you do. <laughs> you just find fault with everything and be really expert at pointing it out in a humorous way. What's that? Roasting, yeah. <laughs> just roast. That's actually, if you do it with love, it could be, it could be nice among friends. Krishna does it. He's also roasted by his friends. There's love there. But in the mode of ignorance, one who's expert at insulting others, they're like a troll on internet forums. or they're just, Their whole skill is, is to find a clever way to bring people down. That's like glorified in our culture. <laughs> it's actually the mode of ignorance. Uh, somebody who's very much in the mode of goodness doesn't want to do that and isn't very expert at that at all. They're expert at uplifting others with their speech. This, this range of potential is there. Upliftment, kind of bewilderment and confusion in the middle and just outright devastation when speech is performed in the mode of ignorance. So anyway, we have a few minutes left. If there's anything else on speech, yes. I was just thinking about how one of the six loving exchanges is to reveal your mind and confidence. But that when we are doing that, we need to take into consideration the austerities of speech. That we're not just revealing our mind and confidence to each other to like just like unload our burden or complain um, to the other person. Um, and that it's you know, just the duty of the other person to just also just, you know, hear that. But that we're doing so with intention, like you and Brenda were both saying, we're doing so with intention to, um, you know, even if it's just the intention to process the experience that we're going through, to be able to better understand it, to know how we move forward in our service to Krishna. Yeah, to reveal one's mind and confidence and to hear confidentially. So important. Um, I've always considered those two to be the heart of the, the six loving exchanges. And yeah, it's really, I, I really agree. And I think that um, I can see from my own experience what happens if you give yourself carte blanche to just, you know, unload. Then it becomes, it can become gossip. It can become even offensive, like really offensive. At the same time, I think there's something to be said for having persons in one's life who you can call up and say, look, I'm just going through something. Can I just, you know, talk to you about this? And like, are you okay with hearing some venting right now? And, you know, with, while making sure that we're not offensive, um, revealing these, some difficulties can be, again, because that's the point is, it is it's in confidence. We're not going on Facebook and just blasting it out to the world. We're not putting it on Twitter. We're not like saying it to anybody we happen to meet. We're in confidence saying something and asking them to keep the confidence and saying, I'm going through this, so it's going to be a little hard to hear it, but this is what it is. And um, that's valuable because it is so touchy. Somebody who can handle that actually is, is really uh, very valuable for us. Um, and they can process it. And you know, sometimes 
I know sometimes I'm called to, to look past the harshness or impurities that may be there when someone else is saying something and see how they're going through something in that moment and, and be actually a little bit mature to help them get to that next level of realization because they're kind of just, you know, not processing it completely, not putting it in the most pure terms. And if I can do that, I'm also engaging in a loving exchange with them because I'm actually uh, meeting them in that place and not reacting. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be of service for a higher good. Um, and it's a form of trust. Oh, Ananda wants to be let in. <laughs> Sorry, I always find it so funny. Yeah, it's a form, it's a form of trust, actually, to, to trust somebody with, with difficult emotions. And to be able to meet that and, and to reciprocate with it is another form of trust. And it's part of the loving exchange. Um, so just, yeah, just to balance out your point, which is well taken for sure. Krishna Sharan, Nagar Kirta. Yes, Narada Muni did that actually. It's a Daksha in the sixth canto. You see, um, Narada Muni, this is in a later birth of Daksha. Narada Muni had preached to one large batch of Daksha's sons and converted them to, to uh, pure devotees and they became celibates, so they were not interested, or, or yeah, they were not interested at all in, in helping Daksha with his kind of management program for the universe. They couldn't get married and be temple commanders. <laughs> they had become uh, just transcendental to the Varnashram, and Daksha tolerated it, and then Narada Muni did it again to another batch of sons, and Daksha became incensed and confronted him, and unfortunately committed some Vaishnava Parad, again, again with his tongue. And Narada Muni, it's described there that he stood there and, 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 and heard it because he was thinking, okay, this is not good for them, but if they get it off their chest, then maybe we can you know, find some middle ground. I can, I can actually find a way to actually say something that they need to hear that can help them because he wanted actually to help Daksha too. Daksha was attached to materialistic activities and Narada Muni is so expert at helping people who are attached to materialistic activities. He thought, I can take this. I'm fine with it. I'm not taking offense. When he gets it out of his system, then he'll be peaceful and receptive, and then I can speak to him. And he tried, and Daksha was not. He didn't get to that point of being receptive and peaceful. So Narada Muni just bowed his head and left and accepted the curse that he'd received from Daksha. But, um, yeah, he was, ready, he was ready, willing, and able to, to tolerate spite and anger and curses for the sake of actually uplifting Daksha, which is a really high level, a really high level. Ultimate Sankirtan spirit right there. Um, yeah, thank you. Nagar Kirtan. Thanks, Prabhu. Um, yeah, thinking about this pastime and pretty much every other pastime that you find where Aparad is you know, a central theme, um, we see that the opera is really severe. I mean, it, the devotee is, uh, except for that, there's, there's only one instance I can think of, and it's almost anecdotal, but um, it's often quoted. Uh, other than that, there is, uh, as far as actual Shastric references go, all the instances of opera are very severe. The devotee is being, uh, you know, calling names and just torn down publicly and humiliated. It's like really extreme stuff. 
So I was thinking it appears that there's like two different, you know, maybe categories of offense or something. There's different ways to categorize offenses or something like that. Like, I mean, we know Aparada Sahasra Nik that, you know, as conditioned living entities, pretty much anything that we do that's not pure devotional service is offensive in one way or another. Um, considering that that's kind of the purpose of this world is to turn our backs on Krishna, which is the root of all offenses, right? So everything here uh, that we do is offensive. But um, what's really considered an offense, from what I understand when we're talking about um, uh, Vaishnava Aparad, destroying our spiritual life and stuff like that, and, you know, no, don't go there, is, is the things that are mentioned in the Shastra of actually trying to tear somebody down, to publicly defame somebody, to actually hurt somebody's feelings. And when we get into revealing one's mind and confidence, you know, like um, Selik was saying, the intention is also important. The intention is there that one may even be saying things that are true about somebody that are negative. Maybe saying, you know, such and such Prabhu, you know, he, he does this, he, you know, he doesn't actually chant his rounds, this and, you know, he... Uh, you know, I saw him doing this the other day, or whatever. And these things, <laughs> these are just facts. They're not actually, they're not actually um, meant to actually defame the person, but they're all spoken one-on-one -on -one of just observations. It seems like there's a, a big gulf of a difference between that and the actual intention to actually harm somebody's reputation or something like that. So um, maybe you can also... You know, so shed some insight on that particular topic because, um, yeah, it's it's almost there's also a a tendency what I've seen too within myself and with others, almost a, a unhealthy paranoia of causing offenses um, to where one cannot actually speak what needs to be spoken, even in confidence to somebody that can be trusted, um, and that can lead to a real sort of bottling up and weird sort of, I don't know, fanaticism kind of like, uh, you know, stunted growth. It's an interesting phenomenon. Um, maybe you can speak on that a little bit. Yeah, so one of the, one of the kind of exceptional situations, for example, that's given by the Acharyas in their commentary on this Bhagavad Gita verse, is how a guru, which, I mean, guru is supposed to be an advanced devotee, a Vaishnava guru is called on to um, help their disciples to understand who to take association from. That's something that we're actually meant to, to do, is know who to take association from and who not to. We should respect everybody, but some people we have to respect from a distance. And some people we should actually, like, be closer to, and some people we should just dedicate our, our whole lives to. So the, the, the closeness factor varies. And to do that, to actually instruct in that way, the guru is called on to point out the faults of others and the relative merits of others. And that's bona fide. It's a bona fide activity that they have to do as a service. Um, and they give that example the acharyas do because it may seem like that person is finding fault. And technically they are, but it's necessary. So um, your point is well taken because we may have to know, for example, who to take association from. And, or someone else may be seeking our advice on who to take association from. And therefore, there has to be some 
unpalatable truths spoken. We don't have to go online and broadcast them, just to put it to the most extreme situation of Kali Yuga, you know, madness. But there can be these difficult conversations in private. And if it's undertaken with a correct motive, then it's not offensive. Uh, it should be understood that it should stay confidential and we should be introspective to try to be faithful to that correct motive. Um, and we should be correctly picking the right people to be you know, revealing our hearts to. But after doing all that, then we're, we're actually protected to some degree. And we shouldn't be like relishing it and, and kind of hashing it out more and more. But for the sake of the purpose that we're actually trying to undertake uh, of, of understanding or helping someone else understand something for their practice, then Bhaktivinoda Thakur says you can point out the faults of others, right? You can actually do that. Um, yeah, like, I mean, there's a lot of subtleties around that. One thing I've learned is to uh, give myself more time to process something before I let it come out of my mouth because I may think I want to talk about it, but actually I'm, I'm, I'm not ready yet because I'm still just kind of not able to control my speech. Even in a confidential conversation, if I just give myself a couple more minutes, it can be beneficial sometimes. So I'm not like, um, yeah, unnecessarily agitated. I've just learned that about myself. I don't think I've destroyed my spiritual life by sometimes erring the wrong way on that. But I, I think the... Um, the first point of your comment is, is very interesting too because like everything we kind of do in conditioned consciousness is to some degree going to be offensive. Actually, in that same commentary by Bhakti Thakur where he talks about how the, there's three different kinds of pure motive, he gives this whole article on Vaishnav Ninda and anybody who wants to look it up, I recommend it highly. He says there's six different kinds of aparad against the Vaishnava by severity. First of all, there's four different kinds of jivas. One is just any single living entity. So that could be like an ant. Higher than that is a, a human being who's a little bit religious, a little bit spiritually inclined. Higher than that is like a Brahmana or someone who's like a Vaishnava, but not quite. Like they're more purified. And higher than that is a Vaishnava. And the degree of reaction for offending any of those, it, it varies according to who you're dealing with. You know, like you're actually, if you step on ants for fun, that's sinful, you know? It's, it's not mentioned in the Bhagavad Gita specifically, but it is actually sinful because that's an offense. But if you step on Vaishnavas for fun, it's worse. <laughs> so, um, sorry, I shouldn't have laughed at that. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, he says killing ants. Yeah. There's also a lead in the Bhagavatam about that. <laughs> Yeah, Madhukya Muni. So anyway, so there's degrees. And in terms of Vaishnava Aparad, um, most offensive is to kill a Vaishnava. Then it's to blaspheme them. To feel malice toward them. To not properly greet them upon seeing them. To become angry with them. Or, least severe, to not feel joy upon seeing them. So actually, if you see a Vaishnava and you're not joyful on seeing them, your heart isn't completely pure. Because you should. You actually should feel joyful on seeing any Vaishnava. That's how Premi Bhaktas feel. They feel joyful. Oh good, my most fallen disciple is here. They actually feel joyful about that. You know, there's no relative consideration. This is a Vaishnava. 
If I don't feel that, I often don't feel that, then we can understand there's some offense in the, in the heart. At the same time, that's different than like physically beating a Vaishnava or something. So these degrees are given by the Acharyas in, in commentaries and in articles like this Vaishnava Ninda article to show us it's not just like black, it's not just two categories. As you said, there might be two categories. There's many categories. You know, all these things apply to like all categories of, of jiva. So you can be, feel happy upon seeing any jiva and you can feel unhappy upon seeing a jiva. You can think in that way. Like, it, it is, it's, there's dozens of categories practically of offenses, but we have, a, what's on our plate is to work on at least eliminating the most severe ones for sure. Um, so yeah, Bhagavatam gives us some practical guidelines. What, what Daksha is doing is something we can relate to. We can actually relate to that kind of uh, malice and um, uncontrolled speech, and that's something that we're called to do something about. Jai. It's 9.10. Wow, what a long discussion we had. Okay, Srila Prabhupada ki jai. Srimad Bhagavatam ki jai.